0: This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy.
1: We'll start the show in a moment after a word from a few amazing fundraisers about what they value most as members of Tammy Zonker's Fundraising Transformers community.
2: I have had the honor of learning and growing from Tammy. She has really helped us understand how to communicate better with our donors, how to make sure that our mission is at the front line of their decision making. And she has just been an absolute joy to learn from.
1: That's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, talking about how being a growth member is helping her communicate better with her donors. When you join Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member, you get live training and coaching with Tammy twice each month. You can get your burning questions answered during her live Ask Me Anything sessions. You get to join in Tammy's live weekly hot topic discussions. You can engage with other fundraising pros like you and her private and safe online community. And you get 24-7 access to her growing library of on-demand fundraising training videos and tools. Here's Jenna Sapoluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how being a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community is helping her grow her capacity, her skills, and her confidence as a fundraiser.
3: It's been so helpful for me to grow my capacity and my skills. I feel more confident uh, knowing that I have Tammy and the Fundraising Transformers group For support, I've reached out to Tammy and the group on several occasions, whether it be just some wording for an email to say, hey, can somebody give me just a little bit of feedback on this? I'd love your thoughts before I send this out for an initiative.
1: We'll hear more later in the show about why Jenna values having access to Tammy's members-only, on-demand training library. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community... Visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth.
0: Today on the Intentional Fundraiser podcast, we are honored to welcome Tom Ahern. Tom modestly refers to himself as a fundraising copywriter. And the truth is, he is the best fundraising copywriter on the planet. He's also author of so many books, Raising More Money with Newsletters, than you ever thought possible. Seeing Through the Donors' Eyes, Keeping Your Donors, which was co-authored with the brilliant Simone Joyot, Making Money with Donor Newsletters, How to Write Fundraising Materials that Raise More Money, What Your Donors Want and Why, If You Had Only Known, You Would Have Raised So Much More, and Turning Doubters into Donors, How to Make a Compelling Case for Your Cause, which is in its second edition. And Tom, I probably missed Some books or some publications, I'm sure. Well, welcome to the show. Oh, thank
4: you, Tammy. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. All of the above.
0: Thank you. Well, I'd love to spend some time unpacking the wisdom in one of your most recent books, Turning Doubters into Donors, How to Make a Compelling Case for Your Cause. Um, But before we dig in, I really just wanted to check in with you. You know, we're entering year three of a pandemic. You know, we've talked about some of the really horrifying things that are happening in the world right now. And you personally have faced some pretty daunting challenges the last year or so. Um, The biggest of which, of course, was losing the love of your life. Um, About a year ago, I think it was May 2nd, the brilliant and irreverent fundraising thought leader and mentor and social justice advocate, Simone Jaillot, um, you know, it's, it's been a really dark and challenging time. How are you? Everyone wants to know, uh, how are you doing?
4: Um, multi-part answer. Um, oh, the first sign of trouble was when I was supposed to go to DC to meet with old friends of Simon and myself. And, uh, I ended up not being able to get on an airplane and, um, At that point, one of those friends said who had lost her husband uh, a few years ago, another love of your life situation, Um, she called me and said, you need grief counseling, don't you? And it wasn't a real question. It was not only did she say you need it, she found me a grief counselor in Rhode Island where I live. Uh, who's very, very good. and um, I've been going to him every week since, um, well, about a month and a half after some months passing. And uh, you know, I thought I I could get through this. Well, it turned out I couldn't. And um, and then Jen Shang stepped in. Now you know, Jen is a psychologist. And uh, she's had her own challenges, and she decided to become um, kind of my volunteer uh, grief counselor. So I have have basically two very well-qualified psychologists trying to hold me erect, and I bring in my, my terribly, you know, benign, banal problems, like, I just don't want to get out of bed, you know, life's not worth living is like, okay, fine. Let's talk about that. And Mm. (laughs) so it's going, it's going is what the the true answer is, it's going everybody who has preceded me in my in our circle. um, And our is the functional pronoun in in this household and will continue to be until I pass. Um, people, somebody just wrote in, and it was on the Caring Bridge um, tribute site for Simon the other day. She had lost her husband when she was quite, um, they were, you know, sort of young adults, and uh she said you know 22 years later i'm still having panic attacks so you know i'm i've got a lot to look forward to
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i feel like i mean i definitely follow the caring bridge site and appreciate how generous and courageous you are to be vulnerable and to share your journey with all of us i think we're all learning through your experience and definitely Sending you love and as much support as, as we can. I mean, it's, it's something extraordinary. So I, I know I speak for so many when we say, when I say that you are, are loved and really cared about. And we thank you. We thank you for being vulnerable and leading the way and being such a gift to our sector as well. Like you continue to do the work, even on the days when you don't feel like getting out of bed.
4: Yeah. Well, in, in some ways, of course, that's just a convenient distraction. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, the work is getting done, and it's sort of interesting work, actually.
0: I'll be curious, too, down the path, looking back, how the loss of Simone, how you'll see that that influenced the work, whether it's deeper levels of empathy and compassion or insights around just around the work that we do. So I know that remains to be seen.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. The um, Cleveland clinic put out a uh, training video for its staff, um, which has an, an interesting point of view. Basically the, the video you, you see people passing uh, patients and so forth. And I, um, and then, you know, a little voice balloon will be above them, thought balloon saying, she just learned she has metastatic cancer. And in other words, you don't know what's going on in people. Once your empathy <laughs> a sensor is uh, kind of more alert. Um, I mean, Jen, for instance, keeps talking about how I must love my f- frailty Mm. (laughs) yeah oh lordy Uh, (laughs) okay (laughs) well i i i know you know i certainly feel um vulnerable and so forth but you know somebody's going to talk about it and a lot of people do actually i've got probably 10 books that were sent by people trying to be helpful that are reflections on the grief process
0: Mm so much to learn from it
4: well lord yeah yeah it, it the when it when uh, someone's death happened and it was quite sudden uh, she had a stroke and uh it was massive and uh three days later she was taken off life support because it was just nothing left i mean I said, should I bring her glasses to the hospital? And they kind of laughed. It's like, no, she won't be reading again. And um, what can I say? So somebody got in touch, Tina Sicati, who is a very good copywriter, um, fundraising person up in Boston. Uh, She had lost her partner um, at a very young age, 43, and she emailed me and said welcome to the club no one wants to belong to
0: yes and we will all belong to it eventually
4: well you get a <laughs> for a grip on mortality with this sort of thing yeah
0: it's difficult it's difficult i just feel like and i want to acknowledge you for for facing it with so much courage and vulnerability yeah
4: thank you i mean you I it's people do say that, and I think if this is what courage feels like, holy moly! I just <laughs> this is beyond. It's nothing you want in your life. And yeah, as you say, it's there for all of us.
0: Tis true. Tis true. All right. So why don't we jump into the book, turning okay. doubters into donors, and talk about Case for Support and I was so touched by the book. Um, you begin with a really adoring tribute to the legendary fundraiser, Jerry Panis, who passed away in 2018. He was also a fundraising hero of mine. Um, I was fortunate to meet him at my very first fundraising conference was, which was the Girl Scouts of the USA national conference, um, out East. And he was the keynote speaker and, uh, I had just moved from a 15-year career in the IBM dealer business network and had made this leap, took a huge pay cut. And after his talk, I went up and introduced myself, had him sign my book, of course. And I told him the transition I had made, and he signed my book. He said, Tammy, congratulations on moving from success to significance. And it's so Oh, my God. Oh, He was just such an extraordinary man, and you saw that too. So tell us about how you came to know Jerry and the impact that he had on your work.
4: Yeah, how did I come to know Jerry? Um, I got a phone call one day. (laughs) I'm sitting at my desk, phone rings, and uh, on the other end of the line is somebody saying, Hello, Tom. This is Jerry Panis. At which point, my heart took a kind of (laughs) double bump because I knew who he was. I knew his legendary whatever, uh, and how important he was. And and I really did say, "Is this really Jerry (laughs) Panis? What are you calling me for?" And he was calling from an airport, and that is very. in fact, I never had a phone call with Jerry that wasn't from an airport. <laughs> and what he was calling about, he said, "I hear you can write. And I've got a client, they need a case. Can you get down to where was it? St. Louis this weekend?" I was <laughs> like, "Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I can find a plane that goes there." Um, but I've never written a case before. And so he um, overnighted me uh, one of their house cases that they had produced, and it was for a successful campaign for elderly housing. And um, so I went through it analytically. I counted how many words were in each section. It had nine sections. And what each section does is meant to do and you know kind of the just got a pattern figured out which gave me enough i mean i am a trained copywriter and and had done that for already 20 years so it wasn't that i didn't have any idea what to do uh i just had no idea what a case was and it's funny thing here here's and uh, as I was trying to educate myself, Simone had a huge library. I have 500 how-to books in my own office and, uh, you know, things about capital campaigns and stuff like that. And you'd read along and, and it would come to the end of a chapter. At the end of the chapter, it would say, now you need a really great case for support. And you turn the page to the next chapter, and it would begin with "Now that you have a really good case for support," <laughs> it's like, "Where's the chapter I need?" And uh, so, I didn't know how to do it. That's probably a good thing because I had to, you know, I had to really re- learn this nuts and boltsy. Um No bad this- habits. <laughs> no, yeah, no bad habits. No. First of all, one of the things um, that I noticed when i moved um at uh someone's behest into the nonprofit world was that um, charities were bo- borrowing each other's ideas in communications and the ideas could be occasionally they'd be fine but most of the time they were sort of that's that's really not a great idea in the first place but you're borrowing it so now it it just It it, it has tenacity. (laughs) Basically, every book I've written is uh, an attempt to fill in that blank. You know, here's what one should do. And I didn't know what one should do. That's why I have those 500 how-to books. Um, But I also decided to have an opinion-free practice. And uh, in other words, I mean, not that you... (laughs) you don't have opinions, but you have informed opinions because you've read as much about data as you can get your hands on. So, you know, anyway, Jerry was, was just unbelievably generous and um, he got that part of my career kicked off mm-hmm. and it led to other things. I mean, that, then I started working as a, a contract case writer for Martin Lundy, And then I started doing them independently as just part of my normal practice. And there's a lot of market for that. People, of all the things that seem to confuse the average, oh, I don't know, I'd say fundraiser, but I'm thinking of more of conferences, attendees at conferences, the one that puzzles people is cases, Jerry did, you know, a fabulous job. I've got his books. I've got, you know, there's some really good stuff. There's an online um, book that you can get for free. Jerry Pannis mm, can't remember the title offhand, but if you just Google Jerry Panis free online uh, PDF,
0: we'll find it and put it in the show notes.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can, you know, if I can step away and look at my, Massive library here, I could tell you what it is, but uh, so there you are, there's there Jerry Pennis in my life. Um, and then he, you know, he had an annual conference that he did with his firm and in, in Chicago, and uh, he had me speak there often, so you know, it was fun. Yeah. So uh, he was one of a thousand mentors, but he was one of the top three, four, five, six, seven, I don't know, you know.
0: <laughs> I read that he gave you some advice around making it bigger.
4: Yeah, that's in one of his books. The um, the concept there, and, so, and I, I mentioned that myself in a recent webinar, and somebody misunderstood what I meant by that. Uh, make it bigger was not that you, they, they thought that meant lie a lot. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Or 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 overstate, exaggerate, or, or exaggerate. <laughs> no, what it, what he meant was, and he uses uh, an example of an art museum down in Florida. He said it isn't just about the museum. It isn't about the art on the walls. It's going to change the district it's in, so that makes it bigger. It's going to uh, increase, you know, traffic to local restaurants and so forth. That that makes it bigger. It'll change a neighborhood that makes it bigger. And he went on and on and on. So that's what he meant by make it bigger. In other words, think about your project outside the walls of your your building and outside the, uh, you know, the focus on your desk.
0: Yeah, like the ripple effect of the impact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know that that's a, a mantra that you really preach. And I'm, I'm a believer. I've drank the Kool-Aid and we know that tying the case to impact raises more money. It inspires more generosity.
4: Oh, yeah. No, it's, you know, the difference between insider's point of view and outsider's point of view is... Where a lot of money gets lost. Um, my first, you mentioned that this is the second edition of my book about cases. First was called "Seeing Through a Donor's Eyes," and the uh, which was probably a better title. But um, all that meant was you've got to grow new eyes. You really have to kind of, and, and I cited the the Heath brothers in their um, book "Made to Stick." where they discovered that the reason um, corporate messaging was not usually penetrating was that uh, it suffered from what they call the curse of knowledge. People on the inside know so much about every bloody detail and they, they kind of, you know, probably just within months of getting hired, um, kind of lose that outsider perspective. So, you know, I it was it was commonplace for me to have a new client and and for as I started the investigative process, I'd say, oh, that's amazing what you do, whatever it was. And they'd say, Oh, well, we don't talk about that anymore, because basically they got bored with it five years ago. <laughs> they don't understand what you know penetrating an audience really requires. I gotta tell you, fundraising, I think, is one of the hardest jobs on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's
0: so counterintuitive in some ways.
4: Yeah. You know, you have to be a low-grade amateur psychologist.
0: <laughs> yes. There's some truth to that. You know, Tom, sometimes when I'm conducting fundraising effectiveness assessments with new clients, I find that a good majority of them don't have a case for support. And so when I ask them to share their case for support, they might send like an agency brochure, or maybe they'll send their mission statement or a vision statement, and they think that it's kind of sort of the same thing, and we know that it's not. Tell us about the key components of a case for support and how it really differs from a mission and vision statement. And and secondly, why is having a case for support a fundraising prerequisite?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the case... Tammy, uh, and this is another thing I learned from Jerry, because he preached very hard that you have to have a case for support whenever you're making an ask. So what is that? Well, let's say you've sent out a direct mail appeal. There needs to be a case for support buried into that. uh, Or you have a landing page, a giving page on your website there needs to be a case for support. And if you want to see a great case for support uh, in that world, um, go to the Greenpeace USA website where they will tell you up front right away that um, they, in order to maintain their independence, they can't accept corporate or government money. Therefore, 100% of what they do is thanks to individuals like you. So if you care about the environment, you care about the planet going to heck in a handbasket, we're your people. Please give. Um, you know, I, I, it, I do a standard um, slide where I break down what these different things are. Mission statement says what we do and why we do it. Uh, vision statement says how things could be better. Um, then there's the strategic plan. Um, often that gets handed out as if it were, if it's capital campaign, as if that were a case for support, but it isn't, it's just a plan for what we're going to do next. The case answers the very important question. Why in the world would I give you stranger, my hard earned money? And I, um, That means the case is actually about the reader, not about the organization.
0: That's powerful. And we're learning more thanks to a lot of the research and um, what Jen Shang with the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy is putting out in the world around uh, the role of identity, the donor's identity, and aligning that identity with the cause and, and the impact it's an easy
4: thing to understand at one level and a very hard thing to understand at another level, because you have to wonder, how would I know the identity of each donor when I have, let's say 3000 donors, $30,000, $300,000. The answer is, well, we have our ways. <laughs> <laughs> and these ways I want to give tribute to Jen, because she dreamed up all of this. Uh, they, one of the things that is done, for instance, is a um, donor survey that has just two easy, easy, easy questions. Uh, first question is, list three to five adjectives that describe who you are, how you see yourself, you know? and um, And then the other question is, three to five adjectives describe why you care about this cause. Just those two questions. You get back, first of all, what you absolutely must have, which is a statistically valid (laughs) quantity of (laughs) responses. Uh, But, you know, that's in some ways the easy part you take all those adjectives that are coming in and you make them into word clouds. And then what word clouds do, of course, is if a word is used 10 times rather than once, that word is bigger, right? So then you have two word clouds. Who are you? Why do you care? And you put them on top of each other to see where is the overhang. And, where that overhang that overlapped is in, you know, ways that people talk about themselves or think about themselves or wish to be, because some of this is aspirational. Um, that's where you find language that will guide your communications. <laughs> and I know I, it's probably sounds pretty fuzzy, uh, you know, on a, this is the first time you've you, people may have ever heard of this and it is and. the I would be surprised if they had heard of it because it's only been around for a couple of years. But uh, we have put it to work with clients, (laughs) big clients, really big clients, (laughs) and uh, it's amazing how it changes everything in your communications. And you have to you have to realize, and this was another thing that, that I didn't, you know, as I came into the nonprofit world, thank goodness I came in from the commercial world because I had a completely different set of um, concepts that I worked with every day tools that I worked with every day. Um, and I came into the nonprofit world and it's, started looking around where is this stuff and I came stomping down at Simone's office one day and she often told this anecdote uh, where I came in you know hair on fire hands flying saying what in the world do you people think you're doing this stuff is built to fail and that is it was I mean things have changed quite a bit so that would be the early 2000s um there's been a dramatic shift in terms of capability competence in in well, we would call them donor communications, but all they really are are sales communications uh not everybody but a but a significant number i mean some of the people you've mentioned, the coopers and so forth,
0: yeah, absolutely I mean really philanthropy is an exchange of values, so to Speak directly to who the donor sees themselves to be or aspires to be. Really does speak directly to their values, mm-hmm. and the authentic alignment of that in your mission produces more generosity. It it makes good logic, um, but it wouldn't be naturally intuitive without great brains like Dr. Jen Sheng.
4: Yeah. 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 No, she taught. She really brought me to brought my game up quite a few levels probably
0: <laughs> mine yeah. as well i've uh, yeah. participated in her uh one of her master classes uh, certification classes and it's it was really revolutionized um, my approach to fundraising so tom uh there is a lot of need in the world right now massive humanitarian efforts to support and save ukrainians There's disastrous flooding in Australia. I mean, the list of needs around the globe is long. Now, you emphasize compelling and urgent messaging in the case for support. And candidly, we know it can be challenging for a local food bank or an arts organization to convey a relevant and compelling and urgent need during these tumultuous times. So... What advice can you offer? Well, I,
4: I think we need to sweep the local food bank off the table bit because they've been actually doing quite well spontaneously. People understand, you know, I mean, they really in their hearts understand what a crisis this is everywhere with the pandemic and that people, you know, are in need for basic human needs, stuff like food and shelter and so forth. So, uh, it, it, the big, the recurring complaint usually comes from an arts organization uh we don't have suffering puppies we don't have starving children what can we talk about and and that that is a misunderstanding of how this dynamic works and identity based fundraising helps get you reoriented the uh the the, you're thinking about, we have to do it just like everybody else does it. So if they have starving children, what's the arts equivalent? It's like, no, what, you, what, you, what that starving child is, is a problem that needs a solution. And the solution is the donor. So what problem are you bringing to the, uh, your base, your family, your tribe, that they can do something about? because that's what they want from the exchange. If you are going to call it that they want to feel like I've done something. I've been purposeful. I've been positive. I've made a difference. And uh, so the arts organization, you have to stop thinking about starving children and start thinking about what do people actually like about what we do and what would they miss? I mean, maybe the, the, um, the hook here is what's called loss aversion and where people are emotionally set up. This is all in your software, you know, the human software, they are set up to um, try to stop losing anything that they actually value.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm working with several arts organizations now both in the U S and a couple in Australia And, you know, the vantage we're taking is during this pandemic time, and even as we begin to emerge a bit, like we have been socially isolated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have experienced incredible loss of self-expression and joy that the arts can bring. And frankly, as a result, like the teenage or youth suicide rates in the U.S. have spiked. They're at an all-time high. I mean, there is a compelling case for the arts, for sure, that that does have urgency, quality of life, saving life, self-expression. And I, I think it really does go back to what you're saying around loss aversion, identity-based fundraising, and really speaking to what your donor or likely donor values. Yeah. I think there's still opportunity. And And I just offer encouragement to organizations who might not feel that their missions are as relevant to dig a little deeper and put some of that modesty aside and tell the truth, like that deeper truth, that deeper level of really vulnerability and transparency about what is happening in your communities with fewer arts.
4: And certainly always... Um, benefit from kind of digging deeper because we. I mean, one of the things you learn with cases is, and we referenced this a little earlier. Organizations lose sight of themselves. You know, they're into all the clockwork of the uh, of getting the job done, the mission done, but they don't necessarily see themselves the way outsiders see themselves, and. Um, you know, arts groups, you have to really understand it isn't stuff on the walls or it isn't, you know, children's theater programming. It, it's, what's that? Why does that stuff matter? And it matters a lot, you know, does. first of all, the, the the thing is, here's your basic selling message as far as I'm concerned in fundraising we need you three words. That's it. It's the same for everybody. We need you. Why? Okay. Well, why do you need me? Well, because blah, 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 and fill start filling in that blank. And, you know, but it, but see what goes first is we need you. That is the primer. That's the trigger for somebody to pay a little more attention. And it's the word you that matters most in those three words. Well, so the the most important word is you. The second most important word is need, and the third most important is we. Every case I've ever written is based on those three words. Yes,
0: and it really underscores your earlier quote that the case is more about the donor than it is the organization.
4: Yeah, exactly.
0: Ding ding! Let's just pull ding, that ding. thread. <laughs>
4: Go to that Greenpeace site. See what they said. Yes, and we no, will post
0: I, that site in the, in the show notes as well so folks can have easy access to it.
1: We're back with growth member Jenna Zypluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how having 24-7 access to Tammy Zonker's on-demand training library is helping her become a better fundraiser.
3: Since joining the Fundraising Transformers group I have had the opportunity to go back and re-watch a host of trainings on such a wide variety of topics from how to work with my team members inside my organization to how to get my board excited and passionate about fundraising and topics like how to reach out to a donor and how to get a meeting with a donor.
1: Here's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa sharing that as a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community, you're never alone. How members of the community support one another by sharing resources and lessons learned to help solve tough fundraising problems.
2: You oftentimes learn from other people across the entire country, which is really nice because it helps you understand that you're not alone in your uh, fundraising challenges. um, I was just sharing with someone the other day that it really helped me feel like I wasn't the only one experiencing these challenges, knowing that someone from New York or New Hampshire or Texas, um, people all over the U.S. with varying communities and different fundraising strategies were all in this together.
1: At the end of the show, we'll hear why members enjoy learning from Tammy and what you can expect when you join as a growth member and her Fundraising Transformers community. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth.
0: Tom, this is a great lead in to my next question. Um, You know, if you've been a professional fundraiser for more than a week, (laughs) you've likely encountered the well-meaning feedback from an executive director or a board member or a fundraising committee member, you know, generous, well-intentioned kind of, quote, you know, armchair copy editors (laughs) sharing their feedback that conveys some version of this isn't my voice um, or we should say this instead. Coach us on how to handle this kind of feedback and really distinguish the differences between your donor audience versus that insider audience that you alluded to earlier.
4: Yeah, happy to. I mean, one of the things that, um, again, coming from the commercial world, which is not forgiving and moving into the nonprofit world where things could be forgiven or even ignored for years apparently in communications um one of the things i noticed was the approval process was just busted and this is what you're talking about here the the well-meaning feedback tammy that is the first thing you have to do is gauge it is it actually a power play and you're not going to win because you're not powerful You know, like a board member says, well, then we must pay attention to that, or we must act on that. Is it that, or is it just in truth, well-meaning? If it is in truth, well-meaning, well, the first thing is you need to remember, you may not want to say it out loud, but you're in charge. As a fundraiser, it's your neck on the line, not theirs, not theirs. You know, they don't, nothing will happen to them. You'll be judged a failure so you are in charge and this you know this is kind of not the culture of fundraising in one way being male you're you're socialized in a different way basically you can tell people to screw and that's seen as a an okay thing but <laughs> it isn't the same for a female in the in a job right And particularly fundraisers who are supposed to be very um, accommodating and all sorts of other things, right? And, you know, where it worked, what happened for me is um, as I started to get a good reputation for being able to write very successful direct mail, I mean, just bringing in much more money than they had ever had before, I got to choose my clients, and the first conversation i'd bring up what i call the verbatim rule which simply is you won't tra- change a word i write and that's not to protect me that's to protect your revenue that's so i don't you know have great ideas have any ideas feel free to tell me what they are but i may not use them and sometimes i would use them sometimes Oh, they saw something I didn't see. So you have to have your own version of the verbatim rule. And again, you may not want to say that out loud like I did, because I was basically <laughs> trying to get rid of bad clients. As the fundraiser in charge of communications with donors and prospects, uh, you have to be in charge. You can. I mean, what's the point of going to a conference and learning something amazing from some expert and then you come back and somebody says, no, it doesn't sound like us. You know, it's just, it's nuts. So,
0: yeah. You know, the, the way I position it with clients now, I, I don't talk about a verbatim rule, but I've definitely been inspired by your verbatim role. But what I say is there will be some advice or coaching or approaches that I bring to you, which will be counterintuitive and they will actually be pretty annoying to you. But everyone <laughs> forgives me when you raise lots more money.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the ultimate answer is try it. See what happens. If you like the results, i.e. more money comes in, then that's, that's the game changer. Everybody wants more money to come in. That's more mission.
0: Yes. Yes. Very good. So um, in the book turning doubters into donors you share some fundraising realities that i think are very applicable to our pseudo post-pandemic fundraising environment one of those realities is that a majority of our donors are 65 or older and it would yes. be it would be easy to believe the stereotype or to buy into the myth that older supporters are not tech savvy when in reality your research that you cite says eighty-three percent of boomers are on the say that the internet is their top source of information. Mm. And I know from my circle of friends, honestly, Zoom, uh, video conferencing du jour tool is how we've stayed in touch with our loved ones when we really couldn't meet face to face. It's how we even now, I do a Zoom almost every night with my grandson. Or I'll send him a little message in the morning before school. <laughs> so you dig you dig into the age question, um, and I'd I'd love to. And that was in the book. You'd if you'd only known, you would have raised more more money. Set us straight on the age question and the realities of digital donor communication.
4: Um, okay, well, I'll try. I mean, I. I, I... I know nothing, Tammy. That's that's my strength. I know nothing. <laughs> Beginner's I, mind. I, I yeah. I be, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's a good one. Beginner's mind. Yes. So I check. I mean, if I have a stat like the age, average age of the U.S. donor, that gets updated every year and it changes. <laughs> what might be a surprise to people is that the average is going up. Not down. It's <laughs> now so, this year or last year, I guess, because that's where the data came from. Um, the average age is sixty-five, as you said, and the year before it was sixty-four. You know, so <laughs> what's what, happening be here? <laughs> what, <laughs> what's happening? And um, you know, the the plausible explanation is that people give from disposable income, and until you kind of age into your prime giving years, which Jeff Brooks says about 55 and up, um, you don't have all that much disposable income. And so you'll hear well-meaning um, people uh, suggest that we must have younger donors. And the truth is, not, not really, not financially, you don't. Um, it's nice I mean everybody's base is going to have a of all ages, right? but they're the people that have the most disposable income are the people at the end of their life I'm not trying to put them in their graves, but you know fifty five and up um not the people who are twenty somethings and thirty somethings who are building their lives so If I'm going to get from you an average length of time for a donor um, is something like five, six, seven years, seven years, if you acquire them as a monthly donor, but the, that's it. Do which seven years of my life do you want? Do you want the seven years when I don't have any extra money to spend? Or do you want the seven years when I've bought everything I can think of twice and I don't want any more stuff. And I, I, I have money to give away. I, I care about the world. I want to be involved. I want causes that give me purpose. Well, I want those people that at that end. And so it isn't that you don't, first of all, isn't that 20, 30, 40-somethings aren't generous. They are very, um, they're very involved, actually, volunteering and stuff like that. But they don't have all that much disposal income. So I prefer to think, you know, you, when you're doing copywriting, you always have a face in your head. That you're writing to that very certain person. And uh, what I used for many years was my mother-in-law, Jane, who we had traveled with a lot. And I knew her and I knew her feelings and her opinions and what she cared about and what she gave money to. She wants to let me go through her checkbook to see what charities she gave to. And that's who I wrote to, right? Mm-hmm. Now I can write to myself because I'm in the <laughs> the prime of my charity giving years.
0: I think that's a powerful insight based on today's reality, right? Maximizing the giving opportunity when people have the most disposable income, which really is in that fifty five to seventy five or eighty years. Eighty. 80, 80. <laughs> you and be and surprised. As health continue like as we continue to live longer by and large, uh, yeah. yeah, the numbers continues to go up. I mean that's good. And at the same time I feel like there's such an opportunity. Like imagine a world where our, donor re- our first-time donor retention was greater than 20%. Overall donor <laughs> retention...
4: Nah, I can't imagine.
0: It would, <laughs> it would take something. But I think that's the mm-hmm. opportunity to increase overall retention. And then we wouldn't have this sliding seven-year window, where do I choose? But what if we could take better care of donors, acknowledge and engage first-time donors, acknowledge lifetime giving... Longevity, even making multiple modest gifts a year, like people who have given for years and years, like they're they're like this anomaly. But what if we actually recognized it and could grow that pool? And if we could apply that across the board and you're thinking, Tammy, have you had mimosas already this morning.
4: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, day drinking has become a big (laughs) deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um
0: but, but but I think that the opportunity is to build the pipeline to those major donors if we could only get better at keeping them.
4: Yeah, it's inter- it's an interesting problem. The the data is has been clear for years and years and years which is that you're keeping at best three, probably more likely two out of every 10 first-time donors. And when you have that as your basic problem, then you see how important it is to get them to that second gift. Well, of course, in one way, that's what monthly giving solves. They have that second gift built in. Um, but then you look at other you know, f- angles on this particular issue, like uh, Jen Shang saying that the to the donor your thank you is your most important initial communication and if you pass that test instead of sending out some pro forma thing from a robot it says uh you know on behalf of the board of directors already i'm you're talking about people i don't know and probably don't care about so formal and it's formal i mean it's like being invited to I don't know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's 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 emotionless. Purposefully, <laughs> they're trying to get the emotion out of it, and they really want to get to the part where they tell you again what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> it's like, no, that's not going to work, folks. It's just not going to work. Um, we just we teach very um, basic concepts like your thank you is a hug. Treat it that way. It's gotta be a good hug too. Not a not a you know, kind of peck on the cheek hug. Pat pat hug that makes you stand up straighter and breaks your back. And uh do you know you know Steph Davenport. Oh my gosh. The world's best best hugger. hugger. (laughs) The world's best hugger. And you know, I mean, she's not like a seven foot tall person or anything. She's a she's a normal size person, but she hugs what I leave her hugs going. I'll be better. You know, they make me fit again, yes. actually. Yes. And it, and they flow through you.
0: There's so much sincerity in Steph's hugs.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And strength. <laughs>
0: She's small but mighty. Small but mighty. Yeah, I love that. So back to the case for support, just to provide some additional clarity, because there is like some confusion at times, again, because we're so Inside the organization, so distinguish the difference between a non-capital case for support and a capital case for support.
4: Well, I mean the the difference is the word capital. The um, capital projects usually building something or creating something that is substantial. Um, it's not just keeping the lights on. It's like this is our new laboratory. This is our new whatever art swing. Um, those are big bucks cases. Uh, they require a different uh, approach. Sometimes depends on what your solicitor uh, counsel advises. I mean, I, I don't, there isn't one approach. But cases essentially need to be wherever you're. You have a point of sale. So a point of sale would be uh, when I, if I, if not when, if I open that envelope for your direct mail appeal, um, what am I going to see first? You know, and is it going to be giving me a big job to do, which is what I is my way of thinking of it. And um, I I have uh, a wonderful uh, direct mail appeal mailed in december so just last year and it made a hundred thousand dollars in two weeks from a small town in connecticut and it wasn't even a dear tom letter it was a dear neighbor letter wow yeah indeed how do you do that (laughs) dear neighbor what (laughs) well you stop talking about yourself yeah there you go rule number one no, you do talk about yourself, but you, you're talking about whatever the mission is in the context of why we need your, need you, not your help, you, the real you. And uh, that's identity-based. <laughs> you know? I mean, Jen, thank you. You've really changed my thinking. But, um, yeah.
0: And then what they have in common. Um, and again, I Tom, I've read every book you've ever written and most of them multiple times and what i've learned from you is that what they have in common is again impact in the community in the state in the world
4: this Uh, direct mail appeal was for the local um madison land trust madison connecticut and um, what they have is trails where you can walk your dog in other words So many people are crossing this land, taking photographs with their feet and memories with their feet. And... uh, It's
0: very poetic, Tom.
4: Well, thank you. I tried to be. Um, And they have a personal interest, investment feeling about this property. And what the letter does, the letter was actually written... Um, well, three, four, five years ago, and uh, by an extraordinary copywriter named Maggie Cohn. She's a volunteer there, and um, they uh, all they do in the letter each year is change the bird. <laughs> so every year, there's a bird being threatened <laughs> by pollution or loss of habitat or, you know, there are a couple of threats very reasonable threats. And that's what they're selling. They're selling the threat.
0: I love it. Well, as we begin to wrap up today's episode, what parting advice about donor communications or case for support specifically, do you have for our listeners?
4: Case for support. First of all, don't be intimidated. They're relatively easy. If you remember, requires three words we need you and then a little bit of you know kind of justification of that but not a ton um necessarily uh urgency is often thrown in with uh, those kind of fly by case comments um you know that uh, thing basically this problem will get worse unless we have your help and that's you know, you're back and forth. Once you understand the basic principles under this, it really, you're going to be writing much better stuff. It's going to be more interesting to the reader, but for sure. And, but the real reward, of course, is the mission grows because more money comes in.
0: Brilliant. So Tom, what's next for you? Any exciting projects that we can look forward to? Well, maybe we'll
4: see. <laughs> I've been as I uh, I'm working with the Coopers, as you know, Julie and Brett Cooper. And if you do Julie Cooper fundraising, Googled, uh, you'll go right to their website. And they are now my webinar producers, and those webinars are very uh, popular because they're kind of back to basic stuff in uh, in a few key areas. Um, cases being won. that one has already passed the next one coming up is going to be in June on the 9th I think and it's a Thursday and it is about donor newsletters which are another puzzle um, I once had the the benefit of having 60 different charity newsletters in my office spread out I was doing a, a presentation and so they had sent me all these things and and I realized, oh my lord, these are, uh, these all are kind of the same, and they are all doing the same stupid stuff. <laughs> so we, <laughs> so I've that you know, another thing. I wrote, the first book I wrote was about donor newsletters. I none of which I invented. I give give full credit to do, the Domain Group out in Seattle. Jeff Brooks is an alum of them. Stephen Screen is a lum of them, um, and and they've what they did they did the hard work they in the 1990s they they the question was asked, are paper well, there's no digital at that point, but are donor newsletters even worth doing? And if you looked at what came back in terms of um cash, <laughs> you'd say no, they're not. they're they're a cost, not a profit center. Um, so the main group tested that theory and uh, they tested every element of the newsletter they could think of. And they came up with a formula. It's a very simple formula. And um, the, uh, <laughs> I've built two with, with a team, I've built two newsletters during the pandemic, one for a national charity and one for a, uh, what's called the Marine mammal Um, Institute I think whatever it's in Sausalito uh, San Francisco Bay and they are a hospital for things like seals and uh, sea otters and so forth um anyway the these two things it's like you have a printing press in your basement that prints money (laughs) one (laughs) for the national they're getting 400 500 back. In response to each issue.
0: Incredible. Yeah. How big is, do you know, do you recall how big their list is?
4: Well, that's from probably uh, about 150,000 people on their list. Wow.
0: That's incredible.
4: Yeah. This is the part people don't sink their teeth into because if you did sink your teeth into it, it wasn't necessarily easy to do it. It takes about four issues to get everything working but at the same time as we had you know what we brought to the table and then they had internal staff do doing the actual writing and i would do some light editing the other place the marine mammal people are making now they have a much smaller list so they're sending out to about twenty-five thousand maybe and they're getting seventy thousand back in the mail with each mailing it's like you know what that is in a year that's all that's like Think about how hard dollars.
0: Yes. <laughs> and think about how hard, how many hours people, nonprofit pros pour into events with no. such a high cost per dollar. I know <laughs> if Don't if only our listeners started. could see your face like the, you know, the horror, <laughs> the horror of it. But comparatively, the return on investment is phenomenal compared to a lot of other really laborious fundraising channels that we
4: yeah tend well, to it, takes, too. it takes some training to do it properly Yeah, you have to understand what offers are you have to understand what makes a good headline you have to understand donor centricity or donor love because that needs to be a very foremost in your language um et cetera etc cetera. it would be great if you had a good designer too uh, but yeah they can be extremely lucrative
0: incredible all right. So our listeners know at the end of each guest conversation, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide a little extra value add for our listeners. So are you ready, Tom? I,
4: yeah, I've got some answers here.
0: <laughs> Here's the first one. What's the best fundraising or development advice you've ever received?
4: Okay. Okay. Well, uh, as I said before, I've had a thousand mentors and I lived with one of those mentors for 37 years. So um, there's a lot of best advice, but you know, the first thing that you hear is you have to ask and the, the, you know, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, that's, that's obvious, I guess, for fundraising, but over time, that became a fairly profound piece of, because like offers, for instance, are all about asking. And how do you ask, but not in a way that uh, offends, let's say, because that's all you're doing is asking for, you, you know, the, the, one of the standard complaints in donor surveys is all I ever hear from them is to ask for my money. It's like, yeah, no, that's not. You're right to complain because that's not how it's supposed to be handled. So there you go. You have to ask.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, what book do you recommend to our audience and why? And don't be shy if it happens to be one of your books.
4: <laughs> no, I actually, I, that was an interesting question to me because then I had to look at my 500 how-to books and think, which one of these do I actually pick up from time to time? <laughs> And one of the ones I've referenced recently um, is from one of your earlier uh, podcasters, Harvey McKinnon. It's the 11 questions every donor asks and the answers, this is the important part, all donors crave. And Harvey did our industry a huge favor. Yeah,
0: he did. Indeed. He's a gem. Tom, what are the top three characteristics needed to be a successful fundraising professional?
4: Yeah, I, you know, people ask me fundraising questions and my standard response is I'm not a fundraiser. I work for fundraisers and I get to peek over their shoulders sometimes, but I'm not, you know, really qualified. For me, it's been having an opinion-free or an attempt to have an opinion-free practice uh, in other words, throwing your throwing your uh, your hopes on data, mm-hmm. and uh, learn keep learning. You know, I'm I'm every day I'm reading an hour at least in the profession, copywriting, not not necessarily just fundraising, because fundraising is not a source of great copywriting. The commercial world is. If you were to look at Um, how the most advanced websites in terms of customer service, they would not be uh, usually in the nonprofit world.
0: I agree. It's very helpful to also learn from the for-profit world, best practices, emerging practices, looking at their messaging. I mean, they have millions and millions of dollars of resources to pour into their messaging. What can we learn from that? So brilliant, brilliant advice. Um, next, what's your favorite fundraising tool or application?
4: Uh, I, I'm a writer. I mean, I just need a good, Grammarly. Word, <laughs> good word processing <laughs> program. There is something that is real, has really proven to be of use. I'm just quickly going there, Tammy, so I can remember what they call themselves. Oh, it's called ThinkMap and uh think map it's all one word and it is a what they call a visual thesaurus and it is a fabulous tool for doing solo brainstorming so you, you what you do is you type in whatever word you're looking for equivalents for and this chart explode this kind of it's like a looks like a dandelion exploded of all the words that are somehow related to the word you typed in. And it gets you thinking, first of all, well, I didn't think about that one. Maybe I should try that approach. So for a writer, it is uh, handy, handy, handy.
0: I love that. I'll be searching on that and adding it to my list of favorites.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of addictive, actually.
0: <laughs> so speaking of favorites... Uh, What's your favorite fundraising conference and why? And I I know this could get you in deep trouble. It's like saying, who's your favorite child or your favorite niece or nephew? No,
4: they're all wonderful. And they are actually at some level because you get to see people like you. (laughs) You know, we had uh, the year before the pandemic, I was on an airplane every two weeks. So I went to or spoke at 36 locations in that year. Wow. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> and whoa. Um, but the the fave, the, there is a favorite. They're all good, but there, there is a favorite. And by the way, they're all a lot of work, too. So, <laughs> you know, tributes to the people who put these things on. Um, the favorite is the storytelling conference, mm-hmm. Chris Davenport. And uh, you know, it's just different, it's like uh you know the last time I was there was in San Diego and there were a thousand people there and that was all the hotel could accommodate actually. And so it was like having a family dinner a, a good family dinner, not the one where people are throwing things at each other, <laughs> but a good family a just a wonderful warm family dinner with a thousand people.
0: <laughs> yes.
4: You know the the principles on which storytelling are founded are so r- responsible uh they it wasn't like we, we just want to do another conference and shove it down somebody's throat uh the uh, and have you know vendors buy booths so that'll pay a lot of the overhead what they what chris wanted to do because he's a video uh, video documentarian and so forth he worked in hollywood is he wanted to teach storytelling because that's the essence of selling. And, uh, and so it always was started from the audience backwards. How can we give them what they need to go back and do better? And uh, how can we give them a good experience, good customer service experience? And one of the things you have to do, if you're going to speak there, as you know, is you hang out with the crowd. You're always on duty and, and sometimes you're even officially always on duty because they'll have a table set up where people can book a fifteen minute, um, you know, uh, story lab
0: or story lab. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. So story lab. I don't know. No, I, I don't think that's. But I mean,
0: yes, I forget it, what they call it. But I know it was powerful, and there were long. Well, like long the-
4: lines, long That's lines. How you, awesome. how you know it was working. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the year la- the last time I was there, people from the headquarters of Boy Scouts in America came up and said, Well, so, uh, we're going to declare bankruptcy next year mm-hmm. because of all these sexual abuse claims. Uh, what do you think our messaging should be to our major donors? <laughs> I thought, Gulp, now this <laughs> is a problem. <laughs> Let me jump in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we came up with something.
0: Yeah, it's powerful. So, uh, for those of you who are interested in the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference, uh, it takes place in wonderful San Antonio, Texas, October 27th through the 29th. Uh, it's always, as Tom said, a great conference. Very warm, incredible speakers, um, just a, a, a great experience. So, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Wait.
4: Yeah. It's a family. And, and plus you should seek out Steph and get a hug.
0: (laughs) Totally. Free hugs. We've (laughs) seen that science. She's the, it's really almost, it's a transformational hug.
4: You don't find that at any other conference.
0: (laughs) That's true. That is very true. (laughs) So Tom, as always, you are amazing. Thank you for sharing your passion and your expertise and really coaching us and telling us some sort of the strategies and and keys to powerful and compelling donor communications. If our listeners want to find more learn more about you, please please go to Tom's new website. I was really impressed by the uh, updated website. And Tom, if you tell me it was a year ago, I'm going to feel really ashamed of myself. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think two years ago. Actually. Oh, goodness. Oh, no, I just cheese
0: <laughs> So that's aherncom.com. A-H-E-R-N-C-O-M-M.com. We'll include a link in the show notes. You can sign up for his free newsletter to stay in the know about upcoming webinars and conference speaking and other amazing, uh, helpful resources. I want to tell just a short Simone story. Uh, as we wrap up today. So it was April 6th, 2021, that I left uh, the Children's Center in Detroit, where I served as chief philanthropy officer for nine years. And I had had my fundraising transform business kind of as the proverbial side hustle for 12 years. And it was April 6th was my last day in that role. We took the leap and our full-time in Fundraising Transformed in our business now. And we had sent out an email blast, right, with a video, with the big announcement, exciting news. And Simone replied right away. And little did I know that she had health issues at that time, which makes it an even more generous email and encouragement. She said, Tammy good for you. Keep on kicking ass. (laughs) That's her. That's her. And I will carry that with me forever. And I'm sure. Advice for
4: everybody. Keep on kicking ass.
0: Yes. Keep on kicking ass. So that's a wrap. That's a wrap for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast with me, Tammy Zonker. Until next time, keep on kicking ass. Bye for now.
1: We're back for a final word about Tammy Zonker's training style and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's growth member Jenna Saplewski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee.
3: Tammy is so encouraging, she's very empowering, she really wants you to succeed in your role, and that really comes through with everything that she does, from the monthly coaching calls to the monthly webinars. The guidance I've received from Tammy and other members of the Fundraising Transformers group has always been so constructive, so beneficial, And you can tell everyone in the group wants everybody else to succeed because we all know what a challenging job it can be to fundraise for our our wonderful causes and our organizations.
1: You may be asking yourself, can a growth membership really help me improve my fundraising results? Is it worth my time? Laurel Grow from Phoenix Family in Kansas City shared that her organization increased charitable dollars raised by 132% since joining as a growth member. Becky Shambliss from Awake in Anchorage, Alaska shared that her organization increased donor retention from 13% to 69% in about a year using what they learned from Tammy's training. And growth member Amanda Johnson from Multiplying Good in Indianapolis shared that her organization exceeded their annual fundraising goal by 104% and grew overall giving by 13% in one year by applying Lessons Learned from Tammy as a member of her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's member Stevie Shumate again, sharing how she and you can grow your fundraising skills as a growth member of Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community.
2: This is the first fundraising role that I have ever been in before. Um, so at 30 years old, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, well, how do I rocket launch my fundraising expertise? You learn from Tammy Zonker. That's what you do.
1: Become a member of the Fundraising Transformers community. To join our live monthly training and ask me anything sessions and get access to our growing library of on-demand training videos and tools and share lessons learned with other fundraising pros like you in our private and safe online community, visit fundraisingtransform.com/growth, click join and get started today.
0: That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag The TheIntentionalFundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level. By teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results driven, donor centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates, and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program, and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination. to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.